All right, y'all, welcome to the Scott Horton Show. I'm the director of the Libertarian Institute, editorial director of Antiwar.com, author of the book Fool's Errand, Time to End the War in Afghanistan, and the brand new Enough Already, Time to End the War on Terrorism. And I've recorded more than 5,500 interviews since 2003, almost all on foreign policy and all available for you at scotthorton.org. You can sign up for the podcast feed there. And the full interview archive is also available at youtube.com slash Scott Horton Show. All right, you guys, check it out on the line. I've got the great Daniel Larison, formerly of the American Conservative Magazine, now writing for Responsible Statecraft, the Quincy Institute there, responsiblestatecraft.org. And we got a bunch of stuff to talk about today, but... The most important one I want to begin with is the battle for who owns, quote, conservative statecraft. Welcome back to the show, Daniel. How are you, sir? I'm doing well. Thanks, Scott. Thanks for having me back. Uh, Yeah, absolutely. Happy to talk to you. So ain't there a fight on between the America Firsters sort of Jacksonian types and the neocon Likudnik types and the Wall Street big business types and... Us libertarians, too, or, well, I'm not including you, or you're more of a conservative, but me and my guys, and we're in there somewhere a little, at least, and um, boy, are we up against a bunch of hawks, and so give us your measure of the situation here. Well, sure, well, so the the piece that uh, talked about that uh, from a few weeks ago, I was responding to something that, that was put out by uh, Nadia Shadlow in Foreign Policy. And uh, it was an interesting, I mean, it was a bad piece. Uh, and that's why I, I took it on. Uh, but it was it was notable because it was trying to sort of co-opt the language of conservative principle or traditional conservatism uh, as essentially window dressing for very standard uh, hawkish and neoconservative foreign policy uh, ideology. It was it was basically trying to put put a, a traditional conservative gloss on on the empire and on uh, everything that's been going on over the last several decades. And so it was, I, I, I found it interesting that they were trying to do that, that this, that Shadlow was trying to do that. And, you know, and even dropping in uh, references to Russell Kirk and Edmund Burke uh, to, to sort of lend it some sort of uh, intellectual uh, heft, I guess, or maybe that was, that was what they were trying to do. Uh, uh, all, all by way of, of trying to justify the status quo and saying that basically nothing should change, and uh, conservative statecraft is essentially uh, militarism and power projection um, wherever we want to go. And so uh, my my challenge to that is that essentially a, a foreign policy of prudence and caution and restraint uh, should be very different from that. It, it, prudence and caution dictate that we shouldn't be meddling in most of the world, that we shouldn't be spending such huge sums on the military and we shouldn't be uh sending the military to all parts of the world uh especially those places where we have uh, nothing at stake and so uh, there there is a a big fight on uh, i think the telling thing is that i think hawks and neoconservatives know that their standard arguments or the, the old arguments that they would have used say 20 years ago simply don't mean anything to most people that identify as conservatives and so they're trying to speak in a different language now, but it's but it's clearly fake and forced uh, because they don't they don't believe in prudence, they don't believe in caution, they don't believe in any of the things that 
are actually at the heart of what could be conservative statecraft. Um, and in terms of the, the political battle in, inside the GOP right now and among elected officials, unfortunately, I think the Hawks still have the upper hand because they tend to be the ones that get selected to run in the elections. Uh, and they tend to be the ones that, that define the terms of the debate uh, within the leadership of the party. And so it, it's, I think it's going to be a contest between a lot of people at the grassroots level uh, and those people that are still uh, in charge of the Republican Party uh, trying to, to pull things in, in different directions. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, well, we certainly have a fight on our hands for the hearts and minds of the mass of the conservatives and Republican voters out there. Now, I think it's funny that the, the way that, and I know that I'm being a little unfair because this is me paraphrasing you, paraphrasing her, but the idea that conservatism means whatever we're doing now, we should just conserve that, even if now what we're doing is completely crazy and radical and poorly thought out. But we don't want to make a change. That would be a leftist thing to do when we're in the middle of getting into a nuclear war or something. And yeah, I mean, and the one of the things I said in the in my response is that the, the only thing that Chadlow's version of conservatism is going to conserve is the military-industrial complex, because yeah, that's yeah. clearly what she's most interested in. That's what she wants to protect from any possible criticism or opposition, uh, and she wants to keep the, the that money flowing. And so that's, I mean, to my mind, that that has absolutely nothing to do with with what I understand conservatism to be, and and it really has nothing to do with with the kind of country that I, I would like to see us be, uh, because a country that is so uh, heavily invested in militarism is one that cannot uh, remain a, a, a truly free country. And for, for the people on, on the hawkish side, they, they, they will often use this language of, of liberty and promoting liberty and, oh, this is, this is at the core of who we are, uh, but, but you, can't, you can't actually have a free country. You can't in, enjoy liberty at home if your foreign policy is so heavily defined by militarism and uh, constant warfare. And and this was, I mean, this was common sense to people in this country not that long ago. I mean, it seems like a long time ago now, but it, you know, as, as recently as even 80, 90 years ago, Americans understood that there were trade-offs between being a free and Republican uh, country on being a militaristic empire, and and that's and clearly we over the last century, the U.S. has drifted into becoming the latter, mm-hmm. um, and so you, you can't you can't be a free country the way that we should be uh, if you're constantly uh, involved in those sorts of operations around the world, and and I think the the war on terror and uh, the the last twenty years especially have driven that home that endless war does eventually come home and it it ends up corroding and destroying things uh, that we value here at home as well. Yeah. You know, um, once upon a time, there was this documentary. I interviewed the guy. It was way back in 07, 08. I don't know if anybody could find it anymore. It might be out there. It was called World War Four, And he was a former oh, Bush uh, staffer. Yeah, that comes from Norman Podhoritz saying that the yeah. Cold War was World War Three and the Terror War is World War Four. Um, and um, and Ladine, I guess, had picked that up. And, and ah, But this yes. guy had been on the Bush the W Bush campaign 
in 2000 and was a real believer. And then by the time he made this documentary, he's very jaded and upset. So he goes in search of what the hell is going on here and how we got into Iraq. And he goes and he interviews the neocons. And he asks, and I have this audio somewhere. Um, he asks Michael Ledeen, well, you know, what's so conservative about world revolution anyway? And Ledeen or I forgot exactly how I phrased the question because that's how Ladine answers it. Ladine says, what's so conservative about world revolution? I don't know. In other words, you know, he's right. a, he might be on the right, but he's a radical right winger, not a conservative at all. He wants to, you know, destroy the terror masters starting in Tehran and then everywhere else you can find one, right? From Nicaragua to, to um, Russia, to China, to wherever. And I should have gone with the capitals there, but was it Managua, I guess? Anyway, um, so, but see, here's the thing. And I, I really learned this well from when I first started uh, hanging around with the guys from antiwar.com. I guess I picked this up a little bit from the New American Magazine in the 90s too, was that it really was the right pretty much that opposed the world wars, at least, you know, until Pearl Harbor, or the Zimmerman Telegram or whatever, and that were you know, at first, the more skeptical ones on the establishment of NATO and the enshrining of a permanent Cold War. But then essentially, because the enemy was the commies, that meant that the the left were more soft on them. I guess the liberals were hawks in the Truman fashion to prove what commies they weren't. So they were pretty, you know, Cold War-like, like Truman and Kennedy and so forth. But the right became the party of the McCarthyites, you know, they became the the absolute, you know, and I don't know how bad his foreign policy was, but overall, the, the anti-communist sentiment on the right helped support the even Truman's war in Korea, and then essentially uh, Johnson's war in Vietnam, and it became left-wing hippies in the street with long hair and day glow and tie-dye saying that we shouldn't be doing this, right? Born on the 4th of July, he comes home from the war and moves left in order to oppose the war in Vietnam, right? And, and then so that meant then that it's a very liberal left-wing and therefore wimpy and effeminate thing to be against war. And all right-wingers, all tough guys, anybody with any sense of macho or facial hair or whatever has to be uh, uh, a war hawk. And because otherwise you're one of them. And so then, you know, we're stuck with the paradox where as you're explaining that all this war we've been waging is changing our society and changing especially our form of government in the worst way um, and in drastic forms at the expense of our freedom. But it just um, it just sounds, I don't know, too much like something a liberal would say to too many right-wingers say, and I guess especially of the boomer generation and so forth. Right? Is that like, am I going yeah. somewhere with this? Well, I mean, yeah, that's, I mean, that's all, I mean, that's how it was, when, when, as I was growing up, that was the sort of the stereotype, or that was how uh, the debate proceeded. I mean, I, I grew up in a, a basically Republican household. Uh, I was surrounded by lots of conservative media, and so for the probably the first half of my life, uh, I imbibed a lot of this basically reflexive hawkishness, uh, you know, pro-military, uh, interventionist sentiment. Uh, that, you know, and anybody that was questioning any of that was considered, uh, you know either either unpatriotic or you know kind of unreliable and you know so i i was well uh well versed in all that or i was i was very familiar with all of that growing up and then it was i was really during the 90s uh as you see 
uh, under the Clinton administration, uh, sort of the hyper-interventionism that the U.S. engaged in even then, uh, and then it went into overdrive after 9-11, uh, that the, the, the U.S. foreign policy was not uh, really tethered to the security of the United States, that it was it was going off on these crazy missions that had little or nothing to do with protecting American citizens and American territory uh, from foreign threats. It was it was almost entirely to do with projecting power and meddling in other people's affairs. Uh, and and it was really the the interventions in the '90s that woke me up to what was really wrong with American foreign policy. Uh, that, then stuff that I was never really exposed to uh, growing up. Uh, and you know, and then you started to hear uh, more and more from you know people like Pat Buchanan uh, challenging the the status quo in foreign policy and reminding us that our foreign policy used to be radically different and and honestly much better, uh, much better for the United States anyway. And so that was uh, that was what really took me out of those the conventional stereotypes about who who should be anti-war. You know, ideally, all I think all sane people should be anti-war. But but I think conservatives especially have a strong incentive to be anti-war because uh, war strengthens the state, it strengthens concentrations of power, and all of that comes at the expense of local communities. At the expense of families, at the expense of social order, and we, you know, we, we forget that, and especially in in the case of, of modern war over the last thirty years, Americans don't necessarily see the the corrosive effects of war happening because they happen more gradually, uh, because there's there's more of a disconnect between the people doing the fighting and the people at home, but there's uh, there's really uh, there, there are corrosive effects that that seep in and, and take over, um, and ultimately warp the way that we see the world and the way that we think about ourselves. So that we we end up becoming this very militaristic people, uh, just in our in our attitudes and our way of thinking about the world. So that all all avenues to other sorts of resolution of conflicts get shut off even before the wars start, and so we we end up thinking of military intervention as the sort of the default or that we're practically the only option available uh, other than sanctions. And so there's this constant uh, pressure on the, the whole society to think in terms of using violence and using coercion to compel other people to do our bidding. And it's it's been really, I think, very poisonous uh, for, for the American people and for, for our society. Mm-hmm. All right. Now, so... I admit, like, I'm kind of a reactionary old bircher still from, like, a long time ago, and I kind of just want to get us out of the United Nations and have nothing to do with international kind of anything and that kind of thing. And yet, um, I think, you know, right now we have our government, not just right now, in the since the end of the Cold War, since H.W. Bush announced the new order, what we say goes, that... Essentially, the American, well, and maybe even since 45, I don't know, but, but their interpretation is that America is the world army to enforce the world law. And the UN Security Council and its edicts don't mean anything if it's not, if we don't have the United States of America to hold it all together. It's the liberal rules-based international order of cooperation and friendship. And it's funny because they talk about great power competition, which 
says we there's something in it for us right there in the description in the name of it um but at the same time no 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 we're all we're doing is enforcing the un charter and just making sure that nobody ever fights anymore and that of course you know if if we came home as bill crystal would put it if if we brought our stuff uh out of wherever all we're dominant then they're all going to go back to war again. Europe doesn't want to be dominated by Germany. They'd rather be dominated by us than by Germany. And if we leave, then they're all going to start killing each other. And then maybe we'll have, uh, you know, God knows what, India and China and Pakistan, everybody, everything is going to all fall apart if we're not there to hold it all together. And it, and it's funny, though, because I would, I would point out this one more thing, too, that I don't know if you saw this, but um, in... Uh, this is not conspiracy stuff. It was in a very mainstream news report in Japan that they opened up a trilateral commission meeting to the press. And Rahm Emanuel gave the American speech about the liberal rules-based world order. And then the whole place went into a riot. And the Japanese and the South Koreans and the Vietnamese essentially told him, no, F you, because they actually said, Daniel, that imagine this, our allies said, China is upholding the UN Charter's world order much more than you are. You talk about liberal rules-based world order. That's your excuse for violating the agreement that we all had before. And now you're you're going to make us choose between you and China. We're going to choose China, not you, because look at where we live. And so, um, you know, anyway, but so that's another view of it, right? But so um, what I'm trying to get to, the Americans' view, which is the world order at all is dependent on the American empire to be the fair referee and make it all happen. Whereas even our allies in Japan and Korea and so forth think that that's really not true, that even Beijing is a better upholder of that world order. And I guess, so never mind getting out of the UN, but do you think that we could have, you know, really withdraw that far without it necessarily being such a disruption to the world the way the Americans believe that it would. Well, yeah, I think there would always be any, there would always be some kind of period of adjustment in, in, in any major change like that. But do I think that the world would fall into to chaos and anarchy if the U.S. stopped projecting power and stopped having forward deployed military forces all over the world? No, I don't. Uh, one reason for that is that all these other countries have their own interest in maintaining the peace and they have their own resources for maintaining the peace. And the, the, the chief reason why so many of them are so dependent on the U S is that we have actively encouraged them to be dependent. And when we have done everything we can to stop them from building up their own, uh, independent security arrangements, because people in our government, people in our, uh, political class want the U S to remain deeply involved in those matters. It's not. Uh, it's not a case where if we were to pull out, they would be completely defenseless and without any means to to do anything for themselves. Uh, they they certainly could do more for themselves. Uh, they, they could do it right now. They could, and they could certainly adjust to doing that over the the next ten, twenty, thirty years. Uh, so it, it's really it's a it's just a scare tactic by people that want to keep things the way they are. To say that everything will fall apart, you know, the world will descend into something akin to World War II or, or even something worse than that uh, if the U.S. doesn't continue doing uh, what it's doing. Um, and I, I think it, honestly, it doesn't give the other nations of the world much credit that they would automatically revert to their worst instincts and their most destructive instincts uh, without uh, 
the U.S. to guide them and, and lead them, because clearly we have not been very good at even guiding ourselves or in governing ourselves. Uh, we're, as you say, we're the ones that are often trampling on international law. We're the ones that are often violating uh, the rules that we profess to uphold. Um, and, and that's one of the reasons why I think there is that perception that other major powers may not be any worse than we are uh, and may even be better uh, when it comes to respecting that system because we often look for ways to make end runs around the UN system and uh, to come up with excuses for why when we violate the UN Charter and we attack other countries, uh, ultimately it's it's okay uh, because, hey, it's it's us and, and of course the people that we're attacking are bad people. And so we, we always find some uh, useful loophole uh, to to those rules uh, when we want to. Um, so I, I think the 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 trouble that we, we face is that there, there is a tremendous amount of fear that things might fall apart if we leave, but that that's it really is just fear that has been stoked by people that want to keep us deeply involved in the world uh, and and in a, in a militarized way. Uh, I, I have no problem with significant engagement with the rest of the world. But, but the militarized form that it has taken, especially in the last 30 years, uh, is, is uh, as I said, deeply corrosive and corrupting to this country. So um, that's something we need to, to move away from. And I, and I think that the, the rest of the world will adjust uh, fairly successfully to that uh, because they have strong incentives to maintain peace in their own regions. And, and we're, not, uh, we're not as important and we're not as indispensable as we like to think we are. Now, when I first started reading antiwar.com, it was just a revelation to me that Pat Buchanan was a regular there. And uh, first of all, I just, I was astounded that they ran Ron Paul. That's how I knew I was in love <laughs> with the thing. But, um, but then I was like, Pat Buchanan? Because I paid attention to politics and say the election in 92, but I was still just a kid. And what I knew of Pat Buchanan was he was anti-gay and anti-abortion and it was the culture war versus the liberals and this kind of thing, which didn't really impress me. I, I couldn't tell the difference between him and Pat Robertson at that time, you know? And then it turns oh. out that like, no, this guy wrote all these books about why you better not do this way back then. So I was wondering if you could tell us a little bit more. You mentioned him before. I wonder if you could tell us a little bit more about what it was that he told us so back then and, and what a revelation that was to you at the time, as you had mentioned before. Sure. Well, so, I mean, of course, he was one of the the outspoken opponents of the original Gulf War, the, the first war against Iraq uh, back in 1990-91. Uh, yeah, which I'd missed um, that, but I was in ninth grade, so I no I'd, right, yeah. right. We were yeah, we were kids. We we weren't going to pick up on that, I think. Uh, but but that he he showed that there was a, a very clear uh, alternative conservative approach to foreign policy uh, even then, because uh, of course I mean, and you you remember. Uh, what it was like with Desert Storm. Uh, it was, at the time, it was extremely popular and it, it remained fairly popular because it was perceived as having been uh, an easy win and a big win and, and everything went fairly well with that, with relatively few American casualties. And so uh, being a, a critic of that war uh, was not at all uh, an easy thing to do. It was not a, a politically convenient thing to do. Um, and and certainly it, it didn't I'm sure it didn't help in the short term uh, with the with Buchanan's political fortunes uh, that he had opposed it, but but it showed to me that there was a real 
difference uh, uh, as a matter of principle over what the U.S. role in the world should be uh, after the, the end of the Cold War. And there was recognition that we didn't need to keep doing the things that we had been doing uh, for the last 40 years uh, at that time, and that we could choose a different path. We could go on to become, uh, as Gene Kirkpatrick uh, put it, a, a normal country. We could become a normal country again uh, after the aberration uh, that the Cold War had been. Uh, because I, I think there was still a recognition among many conservatives that even if you want to say that the Cold War was fully justified or, or was the the least bad option given the circumstances, uh, that it was an aberration from what we should be doing and that we need to move back away from it mm -hmm. uh, now that it was over. And and so that was really the, the fight on the right, and, and it still is uh, the fight on the right, uh, ever since the, the end of the Soviet Union, because there was a recognition that there was no longer a need for this globe-spanning imperial project that we had built up over those decades. Uh, but unfortunately, that, that project became uh, entrenched and, and more, more, uh, more powerful than ever, uh, because there was no, now nothing to really stand in its way. Uh, and so I was really first alerted or became more familiar with Buchanan's arguments about this over the course of the, the late 90s, especially in connection with the intervention in Kosovo, and then when he wrote his book, Republic Noted Empire. And, and that's what really uh, broke through for me that th there was a way to, to have a, a responsible and sane U.S. foreign policy uh, that was also uh, not married to this sort of imperialistic overreach mm. and you know unfortunately the the timing of buchanan's message with that book what well, was not great because of course that was at the, the very height of uh, the so-called unipolar moment uh that's when skepticism about u.s power was probably at its nadir and there was uh and then of course after 9 11 uh there was even more difficulty in getting that sort of argument heard mm -hmm. and so it was uh but it was because i had been exposed to that in the late 90s, that when they came out and, and established the American conservative in the early 2000s uh, to protest the, the impending invasion of Iraq, uh, that's when I knew I had found my political home or my, you know, the position that I wanted to align myself with, because that, it was the one that made the most sense to me. Yeah. Um, yeah, absolutely. At the Libertarian Institute, we publish books, real good ones. So far, we've got Will Griggs, No Quarter. Sheldon Richmond's Coming to Palestine and What Social Animals Owe to Each Other, and Four of Mine, Fool's Aaron, Enough Already, The Great Ron Paul, and my brand new one, Hotter Than the Sun, Time to Abolish Nuclear Weapons. And I'm happy to announce that we've just published our managing editor Keith Knight's first one, The Voluntarist Handbook, an excellent collection of essays by the world's greatest libertarian thinkers and writers, including me. Check them all out at libertarianinstitute.org slash books. And for a limited time, signed copies of Enough Already and Hotter Than the Sun are available at scotthorton.org slash books. Hey guys, I had some wasps in my house. So I shot them to death with my trusty Bug Assault 3.0 model with the improved salt reservoir and bar safety. I don't have a deal with them, but the show does earn a kickback every time you get a Bug Assault or anything else you buy from amazon.com. By way of the link in the right-hand margin on the front page at scotthorton.org.
So keep that in mind. And don't worry about the mess. Your wife will clean it up. Now, and so you mentioned the unipolar moment there. That was Charles Krauthammer, who might as well be Bill Crystal, like one of the worst of the hawks right. there from the Washington Post. And he even called it a moment. It's the Foreign Affairs article. Right. It was, it oh, could yeah. only ever last for a little while because the other countries, including Russia, is going to get rich again or richer. China and India and Brazil are going to become more influential and we'll have to acknowledge their opinions about things some so we have a chance to make things our way for a little while and before it all balances out now they act like if american power has to recede at all that means that oh you want china to rule the world instead of america and including america daniel come on right no right and well i, I think with a lot of that you have a lot of uh, people that are wedded to this idea of u.s hegemony that, that project their own aspirations onto everybody else and they assume that everybody else must want to dominate things in the same way that they do uh and, and there's usually not a, a whole lot of proof to back that up uh, I, i'm always amazed at how people will sort of uncritically talk about you know china wants to displace us or china wants to be the new hegemon um and, and they'll say oh and they want to build this network of bases around the world and they don't even have more than one base outside of their own country um and you know, arguably, they might have a second one, depending on how things work out. Uh, it, it's just laughable that the 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 aspirations of these other countries are in any way comparable to what we've been doing. Um, and you know, as as you said, uh, Krauthammer acknowledged that it was just a moment; it was going to be fleeting. And of course, he and the other hegemonists were uh, instrumental in making sure that that moment was much shorter than it would have otherwise been. Because they ended up wasting huge amounts of resources and and uh, burning through political capital like nobody's business uh, with the invasion of Iraq and and their uh, crusading foreign policy in the two thousands. Uh, so, uh, what a lot of people want to do is is try to get back to that moment at the start of the century and, and then try to somehow lock it in to make to create some sort of permanent military predominance. But it's simply it's it's physically impossible, and it's and it's going to be I think financially impossible longer term for the U.S. to keep that kind of an edge over everybody else, and, and we need to learn how to live or you know coexist with other powers without this uh, enormous military advantage that we've become so accustomed to, because you can't be we're not going to be able to maintain that edge uh, to the extent that we've had it, and we have to learn how to do foreign policy in ways that go beyond making threats and imposing sanctions. All right. So, um, well, you know, I guess on that question, what should the American position on China be, especially in the sense that, you know, they do have, and I would blame the Americans first, the our government first, I don't care for provoking this, but they do have a more expansive foreign policy compared to what it was you know, building up these island shoals and these disputed rocks out there between them and the Philippines and them in Japan and all this kind of stuff. Um, and so, uh, you know, I don't know, without the hyperbole of next thing you know, they'll be in Tokyo or, or California. But, you know, on the other hand, Donald Trump's uh, first secretary of state, Rex Tillerson, who had been the CEO of Exxon, he said that, uh, he told Bob Woodward that the problem is China is threatening our domination of the Pacific. 
right? Um, so are we going to have to share it? How bad is it going to be? If you were in charge, like what is a reasonable take on how to deal with the chai comms, Daniel? Yeah, well, so I I think the, that quote from Tillerson is illustrates a part of the problem that we we assume that the Pacific is ours to dominate in perpetuity. Uh, we, we have to recognize that as the balance of power shifts, we won't be able to impose our will uh, on the whole of the Pacific or on the whole of the Indo-Pacific, as they now grandly choose to call it, uh, in the way that it used to be. And so we'll, there will have to be some accommodation, some willingness to, to compromise with China in, in certain areas. Uh, because the, the alternative is ever higher tensions, uh, an increasing arms race between the two of us, and then possibly even direct conflict, uh, whether over Taiwan or over some other dispute. And of course, and, and there, there are all of these territorial disputes between China and its neighbors that are uh, problems, but they're, they're manageable problems. These are not, and then of course, we have no particular stake in most of them. I think with the Senkakus, we've formally said that we would defend them if the Chinese ever tried to seize them outright, uh, which I, I think is crazy because they're just some rocks in the ocean. They, they don't matter. And so it's certainly not worth going to war over, but we have actually made that commitment to the Japanese under the treaty. And so that's that's one potential flashpoint that's uh, worrisome. But, but I think if there were an understanding that there could be some sort of condominium, some sort of coexistence between two powers in the Pacific, uh, that it doesn't have to just be our domination or their domination, uh, because neither, neither one is really sustainable. Uh, we, we would need to find a way to, to create a, a modus vivendi with them. Uh, and I think one, one of the, the first steps to doing that is to to drop this conceit that we're going to go to war over Taiwan because it doesn't make sense for us to go to war over Taiwan. If we did go to war over Taiwan, we might very well lose. Even if we didn't lose, we would suffer major losses, uh, probably higher losses than anything we've suffered since, probably since World War II, but at least certainly since Vietnam. And it would be a very, uh, it would be a pyrrhic victory at best. So it doesn't it doesn't make sense to me that we would risk so much, uh, including the possible major war with a nuclear armed state, over something like that. And so that that is one area where I would direct the U.S. in a in a different uh, course uh, away from the, the confrontation that we're seeing now over Taiwan. And so back to the ideological part of this, right? Is that um, regardless of the color of the Chinese flag there and that whole dynamic, a conservative policy might sound conservative like you. So, well, we're going to have to figure something out and be reasonable adults about this. And then on the other side, I mean, really, where does the pivot to Asia come from? That was Hillary Clinton announced this policy in foreign policy when she was the incoming secretary of state back in 2011. And, um, uh, no, 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 sorry. It was in 2000. Well, maybe she was already Secretary of State. I think it was in 2011. Anyway, um, and this is, you know, uh, Trump continued it in his own way and added the trade war and all of that. But, um, you know, you could call this like the Trumanite liberal 
policy. And you have this other article here about George Packer, who is famous to me for being one of the most important liberals who helped to build the media consensus for their side in the buildup to Iraq War II 20 years ago. Uh, Pollock and O'Hanlon were kind of the dynamic duo from the Brookings Institute and wherever. Um, And this guy was sort of the third major guy saying, come on, all good liberals got to get with George W. Bush's invasion. It's going to be good for the people of Iraq. And Saddam Hussein is such a bad guy, et cetera, and all these things. And now here he is saying, essentially, okay, that whole Middle East thing didn't work out. But what we're going to do, we're just going to forget about that. And all the guys who fought in it, too, and died in it and everything else. We're just going to memory hole all of that stuff because right now we got Russia. They're the bad guys. And that means we're on the side of the little guy, the good guy, the Ukrainians defending themselves. And so now's no time to turn our back on liberal world rules-based order hegemony type thing. And so, one, I want to let you, you know, talk a lot about Packer and what you wrote about this here. But two... Like, it seems like there's a way that we can, you know, if I'm not too clumsily doing it right now, that we can show that, yeah, this is the consensus that we're against, is what these idiots from the New Yorker think, you know? Yeah, and so I so I, I wrote the, the piece against Shadlow to sort of guard against the, the neoconservative attack against uh, anti-intervention and pro-restraint people. Uh, and then the, the Packer piece that came out uh, a little bit after that uh, was an attack coming from the left. It was published in the Atlantic. And yeah, it was it was striking uh, in, a, in a couple of ways that that he of all people thought that it was appropriate to to denounce anyone for foreign policy errors uh, when, when his own tradition, his own tradition of liberal interventionism was deeply discredited, not just by the Iraq war, but but by the Libyan war as well. And in fact, I, I even found, uh, I went looking, I, and I, re- I remember that he had supported the Libyan intervention, and I went back and found that uh, he had even written about it, and you know was cheering it on uh, at, when it began, and and to my mind that's that was typical of, of these kinds of liberal hawks. Uh, they they never saw a military intervention they didn't like. They never doubted the the efficacy of American power. They never doubted the goodness of American power, and so they 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 just automatically, instinctively, always side with the U.S. interfering somewhere um, and using force somewhere, ostensibly for high-minded goals or whatever, but but ultimately they they just worship this use of power uh, and and, and always end up siding with it. And and, and so, of course, they hate restraint. Of course, they hate people that say that there are limits to that power and that there are... uh, there are reasons to hold back. There are reasons not to get involved. Um, and so it was, the, the, the attack piece itself was kind of laughable because he didn't really engage with anything that actual restrainers said, uh, whether about Ukraine or anything else. Uh, and, and so he just, he was just sort of writing them off. But then I, but then I thought it was interesting because when he got to Iran, uh, in his discussion, uh, he basically acknowledged the, the restraint position was correct. And you know we're not going to pursue regime change. We're not going to invade, and that sanctions are actually hurting the people, which which everyone I think now recognizes is true. Uh, but somehow, in spite of recognizing that the restrainers have been right about that, 
uh, he, he just writes them off and, and mocks them as, as hopeless. And so it was, it, it was a, a revealing piece in that it showed that sort of the, the shamelessness and the, the total lack of accountability that exists in our foreign policy debates, where someone like that, who, who more than almost anybody in the foreign policy debates should be discredited and never heard from again, chooses to, to act as some sort of commissar and say that this whole foreign policy tradition is now uh, not welcome uh, as part of the debate, that you know, they should just be cast out into the into the margins. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's 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 frustrating on one level, but it's it's also a reminder that you know this this keeps happening because the arguments that these people have for their policies are often shockingly weak. And so the the only things that they can really do are denounce and smear uh, and marginalize because they can't they usually can't win on the merits and and so they're reduced to this. Yeah. You know what? I know that that's true. <laughs> I debated Bill Crystal and all he did as I knew he was going to do was just get up there and you know mumble a bunch of slogans and bromides. Look, right. We haven't had a war, Daniel, since 1945. We've kept the peace this whole time. How can you complain? <laughs> well, that's, that's his a, argument. Yeah, that's good news. Right, right. Yeah. Okay. Um, good one. And even though, like, he is the man most responsible other than, like, okay, Richard Pearl, Paul Wolfowitz, Donald Rumsfeld, Dick Cheney, and George W. Bush himself. Um, but he's really tied with all of them for man most responsible for getting us into Iraq War II 20 years ago. And just like Packer here, and just like, you know, the editor of The Atlantic that ran Packer's article is Jeffrey Goldberg, the guy that said that Saddam was training Al-Qaeda in The New Yorker magazine, is the editor of the damn article, the, the one of the most important magazines in America. Still, all of them, no accountability whatsoever. Uh, and so this keeps happening. And I like, you know, I read a thing about, uh, oh, I know what it was. It was, did you see Taibbi and a Brit from The Spectator debated Gladwell and Michelle Goldberg from The New York, from the New York Times um, in Toronto on whether you should trust the mainstream media or not? It's a great read. No, yeah, you don't have to sit through the whole I video. Seen they, it, but- yeah, they have the transcript at his uh, substack and, and, uh, it's really great. And now I hope I can remember what my point was going to be. We'll see. Flip a coin down over there and see if I can remember it. Um, uh, hell. You should watch it. It's really fun. <laughs> oh, well, I'll tell you the funniest part of it is Taibi says something about, you know, back in the days of Walter Cronkite, people said that they trusted the media. Now they just don't for all these reasons and stuff. And Gladwell just grabs onto that and spends the rest of the time calling Matt Taibbi a white supremacist who wishes that we lived in the 1950s. He like four or five times goes, oh yeah, Taibbi just wants to go back to the 50s. Like, just What are you even talking about, man? And people said Cronkite was the most trusted man in America in 1972 or something. I don't even know. And he wasn't saying, I want to go back to that. He was just saying, look at how much trust the mainstream media has lost since then. That's all he ever said. And Gladwell spends the whole time saying that this proves that Taibbi is the leader of the Aryan nations. Something. So that was funny. That was not my point, but it was funny. 
And, well, I mean, in terms of talking about uh, trusted media, well, one of the things that's been uh, interesting to see or, or, or to reflect on in, in the last few years is that there is a, a tremendous uh, deference towards the government from the media, uh, especially when it comes to national security issues. And I mean, and of course, that was true back in the, in the run-up to the Iraq War as well. Uh, that there, there's this tremendous deference uh, to the government and and taking government claims at face value, uh, no, no matter how outlandish they may seem. And, and, I, and I think that's that's one of the reasons, in fact, why uh, there is so much distrust of uh, major media outlets because they they do tend to defer to power. They don't challenge those in power. They don't question official claims as much as they're supposed to be doing. Uh, and so they they end up becoming uh, mouthpieces for the government, and and government mouthpieces are rightly viewed with suspicion and skepticism, uh, and and that's one of the problems that uh, we keep running into because whether it's for reasons of access or or, or ideological reasons or whatever it may be, there is a strong bias in favor of of deferring to those official claims uh, when what we need. From our media outlets is uh, for them to to challenge them and to question them, uh, and and not assume that the government is telling us the truth. I, I I think you may have seen that story about the the missile strike that happened in Poland, uh, and the the initial AP alert went out saying you know, Russian missiles hit Poland, and and their only source for that was one anonymous intelligence official, and in their internal deliberations, one of the editors said, "Oh, they wouldn't." They wouldn't get that wrong. An intelligence official wouldn't make a mistake about something like that. Yeah, I can't you know, course, imagine that he would. Right. So I mean, so what? What is this? What is an editor doing? Just swallowing this stuff whole without any skepticism, without any doubt at all. Uh, and and that's how a lot of the news reporting on national security stuff goes, evidently, uh, where official claims are simply taken for what whatever the government says and, and there's no investigation, there's no double checking of it and it just goes out. And I mean, and you know, luckily they, they did end up rescinding that story or they, they corrected that story and acknowledged that they made a mistake, but, but the initial report set off the, that firestorm of people calling for direct intervention in Ukraine. Uh, and, and, you know, you had people talking about sinking the Russian black sea fleet and imposing a no-fly zone, mm -hmm. all because of an errant air defense missile from the Ukrainian side. Yep. And Article so was, five. Was, yeah. Right. Right. And and so it was, it was disturbing to see how ready so many people were to to jump on that bandwagon, and and to believe the the most thinly sourced claim because it had it pushed in in the direction that they already wanted to go. Yeah. And it, it's the more disturbing thing is to realize that if if our government and the Polish government had jumped on that same bandwagon and promoted a lie about it, a, a lot of the media outlets would have just echoed them. Uh, you would not have seen people pushing back on it. You would not have seen people saying, well, what if it was a Ukrainian missile? Because then, th at that point, anybody raising that question would be accused of disloyalty or wanting Russia to win or something. And so it's... Uh, this is the the atmosphere that we're operating in. It's it's very uh, it's very bad for a healthy debate.
Yeah. Hey, I remember my awesome point too, which was about Michelle Goldberg saying, well, we got it right that Russia was going to invade Ukraine. When of course, the New York Times completely neglected to explain to the American people in any reasonable terms whatsoever why it happened and America's role in the thing, even though they covered every provocation for the last 30 years and every warning about what was going to happen for the last 30 years too. And they still won't tell the truth to the American people about what's behind that war. But she's saying, yeah, but that time when we repeated CIA talking points, it wasn't a lie. And it turned out to be right. But she couldn't cite a single thing that they got right where they exposed the U.S. government for anything. All she's saying is, yes, we toe the line for the state all the time. But here's one example where it wasn't totally BS. Well, yeah, and then that... <laughs> I mean, that kind of speaks for itself, but it's also worth remembering that a lot of the official claims coming out of the administration in the early, in the days prior to the invasion, uh, didn't end up being borne out by events either. You know, they, there was a lot of, you know, doom and gloom scenarios coming, uh, through the, the leaks in the press saying that Kiev would fall in three days or something. And, you know, maybe that was that may have been what the Russians imagined would happen, but it, there was no reason to think that that would happen. Uh, so it was it was one of those cases where th there was a lot of uh, you know, extra fear mongering on top of of whatever the warnings were. Uh, that and that and that fear mongering was amplified uh, over and over by by credulous people uh, uh, like like the ones you're talking about. Yep. All right. Well, I will let you go and have a great afternoon, I hope, after this, Daniel. I really appreciate your time on the show. Uh, yeah. Thanks a lot, Scott. Appreciate it. All right, you guys. That is Daniel Larison. And once upon a time and soon again someday, our guy at antiwar.com. And here he is at Responsible Statecraft writing about the battle for conservative statecraft and the horribleness of George Packer. The Scott Horton Show and Anti-War Radio can be heard on KPFK 90.7 FM in LA, APSradio.com, Antiwar.com, ScottHorton.org, and LibertarianInstitute.org.